0: Welcome back to another episode of Weird Distractions Podcast, a weekly show where I, your host Alex, rotate in discussing true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, a little bit of this and a little bit of that to ride you, and more than likely what your local weather reporter would consider a weird distraction from everyday life. Happy New Year. I hope everyone is enjoying the fir- basically the first day of 2023. I'm recording this a about a week and a bit beforehand. So hopefully we're all still living. The world hasn't uh, imploded (laughs) at this point. And this week we are talking about a true crime case. But before we dive into that, I need to go over what I need distraction from. No housekeeping this week. New year. Nothing new on the agenda so far. I think if anything does come up I'll just share it on social media. You're all good, but my need for distraction is the fact that I'm just hoping. I'm putting a lot of stock in this, but I am hoping that 2023 is better than 2020, 2021 and 2022. I know I probably sound like a lot of really depressed millennials right now, but come on. 2023, we've 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 got to get it together here. So My need for distraction is just the overwhelming anxiety uh, that I am having with the fact it's a new year, and with a new year comes new possibilities, hopefully better ones, question mark? Who knows? And with that being said, I think it's just time. Let's just dive into this week's episode. It's, It's a doozy. It's a doozy. So as mentioned, this week I'm back discussing a true crime case, and for the first time ever... It's a case from Colombia. This week, I'll be discussing Daniel Carmago Barbosa, also known as the sadist of L.A. Chaquito and the mangrove monster. This will be a pretty intense true crime episode, so proceed with caution. I consider it maybe a bit heavier in comparison to some of the other true crime episodes. It's it's I don't know. True crime in general is not like a light topic to ever discuss, but this one was definitely a bit harder for me to research, if that makes sense. With that also being said, there are some discrepancies in terms of dates online, plus there's some pronunciations that I may stumble over. So basically bear with me as I try my hardest to navigate through all of that. I know some people tuning in might think, well, why would you cover a case when you can barely pronounce any of the words or where there's so many discrepancies? I wanted to cover this case because A, I hadn't heard about it until I started flipping through one of my books and saw it and was like, oh my gosh, this is this is really intense. And I, I don't know, maybe there's people out there that haven't heard about it. And two, because I just don't want to focus all my cases being from the United States and Canada because I know sometimes, especially when it comes to the paranormal episodes, I'm finding I am hyper focusing on the states right now, which is a little, I don't know, it is what it is. I mean, I like to expand my horizons because that way, if there are folks listening from overseas, they can be like, hey, finally, a show's covering this case that happened in my hometown or just in general, I'm a big I'm a big learner, so if I learn something, I want to talk about it, hence why this is now the third year of the show running. So that's kind of why. Hopefully hopefully, I do some justice, but as always, if I do mess up anything, please just let me know, shoot me an email, and I will try and correct it in a future episode. Due to potential coarse language, disturbing adult themes, mentions of rape, abuse of minors, and other topics that could be discussed today, Listener discretion is advised. Our story with Daniel begins on January 22nd of 1930 in Anolemia, Colombia, making him an Aquarius, which good because I'm sorry, you're not allowed in the Capricorn Club. I'm just going to put that out there. Sorry, Daniel, but not sorry. Daniel's dad was a local businessman named Daniel Cargo Rincino and his mother was Teresa Barbosa. For some context, Teresa was Daniel Sr.'s second wife. Daniel Jr. also had an older half-sister born from his father's first marriage. Before the age of three, Daniel and his family experienced a tragedy, as accounts claim that Teresa reportedly passed away. I couldn't find Teresa's cause of death, nor much detailed information on her or even Daniel's half-sister for that matter. Basically, just no information about either of them, which is unfortunate. But what I did find out was that Daniel Sr. moved on quickly, which, no judgment, but just something to, you know, be aware of. Before Daniel Jr. and his sister knew it, they had a new stepmother named Dioselina. Life at home wasn't rainbows and butterflies for Daniel and his half-sister now that Daniel Sr. and Dioselina had got together. Daniel Sr. had been described in the resources I came across as overbearing and emotionally distant towards his children, especially son Daniel. Dio Salino wasn't described in a positive manner either, with accounts claiming she was actually abusive towards Daniel Jr. She would reportedly dress him up in girls' clothing as a form of punishment and would make him go out in this clothing, even forcing him to wear it to school, which led to Daniel Jr. being bullied by his peers. And I will say, I, I actually saw this, uh, there was one girl in my class who, like, way, way back in public school, her mom would do the same thing. She would dress her up in boys' clothing or just not really... I don't know, just clothing that made her a target for, of course, other kids to poke fun at, which is just so cruel and unusual. But it's one of those things that I think maybe many of us have seen growing up as a form of morbid and weird punishment that parents will do to their children. In a direct quote to expand and reiterate the relationship between Daniel Jr. and Dio Selena a bit further from a Criminal Minds wiki page, quote, she being Dio doted on her stepdaughter while abusing her stepson, who she would punish by forcibly undressing him from the waist down and hitting him in the bare buttocks with a bullwhip. After Daniel developed violent tendencies and got in a fight at school, Dio punished him by taking away his pants, forcing him to wear women's clothes, and inviting his schoolmates to come over and watch him, end quote. So right off the bat, Daniel Jr.'s life is uh, bit rocky, to say the least. The trauma that Daniel Jr. received from his stepmother on top of the cold shoulder he got from his father quickly made him a hateful, angry person based on reports. On a kind of a semi-lighter note, like a very small little tidbit of light I could find online, Daniel Jr. did thrive in school. He was a really good student, with reports noting he had a reported IQ of 116. Unfortunately, he dropped out of school due to reportedly having to help his family out financially, so school went on the back burner indefinitely. To make ends meet, Daniel Jr. would work as a door-to-door salesman. When Daniel was 28 years old, he was reportedly arrested in Bogota, specifically on May 24th of 1958. The arrest was for petty theft. As it turns out, his employment wasn't necessarily bringing in too much of an income. So I think he might have stolen some food or something. Basically, he was just stealing to survive is what I understood the situation to be. Around this same time, Daniel was in a common-law relationship with a woman named Alcira. I think Daniel met Alcira through work, and based on reports, she was described as being young, so I'm assuming she was younger than Daniel, but I'm not really sure how old she was specifically. Regardless of the fine details, the two would go on to have two children at some point in the relationship, Daniel would actually fall in love with somebody else. This someone else was a woman named Esperenza. And from what I gathered, Daniel eventually left his young family to be with her. Daniel was so swooned over Esperenza that he even proposed to her. But here's where things get weird and we start entering the red flag area. Daniel seemed to have a weird fixation with women being virgins when he was with them. And when he found out that his new fiancée was not a virgin, he proceeded to call off the engagement. And the relationship actually ended between the two romantically. But Daniel didn't really have anywhere else to go housing-wise, so he and Esperanza came to an agreement of sorts. Daniel's plan was that he would continue to live with her if she helped him out by finding other girls who were virgins to have sex with. This agreement may have been heavily manipulated by Daniel, which reports do detail him as being a massive manipulator, basically doing whatever it took to get what he wanted. In Daniel's mind, Esperanza getting these virgin girls for him was her making up for the fact that he felt disappointed by her not being a virgin which can we just pause for a second the fact that he was able to convince esperanza to help him get other women who were virgins and probably younger girls which we unfortunately will get to to have sex with him like she would bring him home and you know all of this the fact that he was able to do that is just showing how much of a power dynamic must have been at play here And not only that, but it wasn't her fault, if you catch my drift. Like, she, it's not her responsibility for him to get his rocks off, point blank, period. So this man, Daniel just has, like, this audacity to him. And I understand that, obviously, I've painted him to have a very not-so-great childhood. But as we get into it, you will slowly and surely start feeling less and less sorry for him. You might be thinking, okay, this is kind of a weird arrangement between Danielle and Esperenza, who are now kind of just, I guess, roommates at this point. But it can't be anything more than that, right? And unfortunately, it was much, much, much more than that. Before we move on, I'm just gonna drop a trigger warning, as things are about to get pretty intense as I now discuss the crimes which include the rape of minors young women, If you're not in the headspace to listen to this portion, feel free to pause, come back a different day. I totally get it, but uh, here we go. So, Esperanza would lure young girls back to the place she and Daniel shared under whatever guise she could kind of come up with. Esperanza convinced a total of five young girls to come back to their place. Once there, the girls would be drugged with barbiturates, specifically ciconal sodium, so that Daniel could rape them while they were unconscious. From my understanding, Daniel nor Esperanza murdered these girls. Not that it makes it the situation any better, but I just want to clarify, we're, we're not at that point. The fifth girl that was raped by Daniel went to officials and reported the abuse, which led investigators to the front door of Esperanza and Daniel. The two were arrested, with Daniel being charged, tried, and finally convicted for sexual assault by April 10th of 1964. Originally, Daniel was going to receive only three years in prison, but there was a switch in judges, and he actually was sentenced to eight. I assume that Esperanza was also convicted, however, I can't find exactly her what her charge was. But I have this assumption due to resources claim that the two went to separate prisons. Before I move on, I just want to highlight the fact that someone can rape an innocent child or just like rape in general and they get less than 10 years. It just blows my mind. Like this is giving Brock Turner bullshit to me and I don't like it. Just going to air that out right now. I'm not a fan. Anyways, Daniel reportedly served the eight years and was released, but his involvement with the justice system was far from over. And I just want to emphasize, it was far from over. It turns out Daniel made his way to Brazil sometime in 1973. We know this due to reports of Daniel being arrested there due to not having proper identification. Which, I'm just going to say, I told you, he was not done with the justice system, and unfortunately, it's going to get worse. So Daniel's apprehended again due to spotty ID and lack of documentation, in which he was allegedly living under a false name, and I'm sure he was just doing this to try and start over. Eventually, he was deported and sent back to Colombia, where he supposedly began selling TVs on the streets of Barranquilla. Selling TVs and starting over his life post-prison perhaps wasn't cutting out for Daniel with accounts claiming he was back on his bullshit shortly after coming back to Colombia. Again, another trigger warning as I proceed to dive into more crimes, which will become more graphic. As mentioned, shortly after coming back to Columbia in 1973, Daniel saw an opportunity to kind of fall back into former habits. Now, I will say some accounts claim that this slippage on Daniel's behalf back into his old ways took place in 1974, so there's a little bit of discrepancy. Nonetheless, he was supposedly walking by a school one day and allegedly kidnapped a nine-year-old girl at presumed random. From what I gathered, this was a crime of opportunity. This unnamed girl was raped and strangled by Daniel, with many accounts claiming that she may have been the first murder victim of Daniel. Notice how I say, first murder victim? Daniel's trail of terror is only in its early stages. He would be arrested for the murder of this unnamed little girl come May of 1974. How did police link Daniel to the crime, you might wonder? Well, supposedly, they found him revisiting the scene of the crime. Apparently, Daniel had left television screens beside the victim, and he was caught going back to retrieve these. The audacity of this man, and just the unorganization that he has, is truly astonishing. By December 24th of 1977, He was sentenced to 25 years to be served at the Gargona Island. Originally, it was supposed to be a 30-year sentence, but it got dropped down to 25, which I don't agree with, but I digress. Gargona Island is a Colombian island that was settled back in 1300 AD, serving as a prison in the 20th century. In a direct quote from the island's Wikipedia page, quote, It became a state high-security prison housing Colombia's more violent criminals, generally those convicted of murder and rape. The penitentiary was built following the model of Nazi concentration camps, end quote. Despite being described as a very intense place with alleged high security, Daniel would escape come 1984 using a handmade boat. Originally, the authorities on the island assumed that Daniel probably didn't survive this escape from the island. Basically, they thought he more than likely died at sea, probably eaten by sharks or, you know, just drowned. But death was not in Daniel's boat, and he actually ended up in Quito, Ecuador, south of Gorgona Island. From Quito, he goes to Guayaquil with accounts reporting that he's there by December 5th or 6th of 1984. Now, originally, before I kept reading the information about Daniel, I thought, okay, maybe now he'll have a cooling off period or just kind of lay low. But then I kept reading, and boy, was I very, very, very wrong about it that. According to reports, by the 18th of December, literally less than two weeks from when he gets to Guayaquil he strikes again. Daniel reportedly abducted a nine-year-old girl from the city of Cuevedo. By December 19th, an unnamed 10-year-old girl also disappeared. Both girls had reportedly been raped and murdered with the cause of death and other details not being shared. I'm not sure whether this was due to the age of the victims, documentation of officials, or another reason. Officials suspect that between 1984 and 1986, Daniel may have committed at least 55 rapes and murders of both young girls and adult women. That number wasn't set in stone, and we'll get into why later on. Daniel would allegedly lure his victims by pretending to be a foreigner, who would approach these women or girls looking for a Protestant pastor in a church located on the outskirts of town. Under this ruse, he would supposedly explain to these women and girls that he needed to deliver a large sum of money to this pastor, which he would then allegedly offer an award, whether it would be money, food, or candy to the girls or women if they would show him the way to the church that he was looking for. Daniel would target women and girls who are financially vulnerable and probably could have benefited from an offer of any form of money or food or just anything really. Those that would agree to help him would then be manipulated away from town before being threatened with a knife or a machete. Accounts vary. He would then proceed to sexually assault and rape these victims before murdering them, either by means of strangulation, stabbing, basically with whatever method he could use in the moment. Some resources, such as the Criminal Minds wiki page, pointed out that not every murder was the exact same scene or done the exact same way. Which I can imagine for investigators, this made it even more difficult to develop a profile of who was responsible for these murders and rapes. Which every scene that the investigators were coming up to just became more deranged and intense and just absolutely chaotic with how the victims were being murdered. For example, in a direct quote from the Criminal Minds wiki page, quote, One adult woman who struck him in the head with a rock while he was raping her enraged him so much that he decapitated her on the spot and threw her head away. Another victim was gutted with her lungs, kidneys, and heart extracted. End quote. He had no regard for human life. And because of his varying methods of taking lives, again it was a challenge for investigators at first to pinpoint this on Daniel. Which, to be fair, Daniel was presumed dead after his escape from prison, and some reports claim that many investigators thought that this uptick in murders and rapes was actually a group of people as opposed to one person. As previously mentioned, between 1984 and 1986, Daniel continued on his trail of terror. By February of 1986, he reportedly raped and attempted to murder a woman named Maria Alexandra Velez in Guayaquil. By February 26, reports claim that Daniel had raped and murdered Elizabeth, a woman named Elizabeth Talpez. Unfortunately, I couldn't find out any details about Maria or Elizabeth other than the dates and their names. Speaking of spotty information, here's where there is a huge discrepancy in terms of dates. Some sources claim that Daniel was arrested on February 26 of 1986 after he was found in possession of bloody clothes, stolen from his last victim being Elizabeth Telpez. According to the book, The Big Book of Serial Killers by Jack Rosewood and Rebecca Lowe, it was indicated that during this arrest, Daniel also had part of her genitals with him, which, why Daniel? other resources such as murderpedia claim that he was arrested in june of 1988 for the murder of gloria Andino, a 12 year old girl articles i came across on newspapers.com seem a point to 1986 as being the correct arrest date although that doesn't discredit the murder of gloria supposedly daniel was linked to the murder of gloria by a fingerprint left on a candy wrapper at the scene Which, once again, he would use candy and food as well as money to lure his victims. So the fact that they found the candy wrapper wasn't that uncommon. Apparently, candy wrappers and just other pieces of evidence similar to this would be found at his crime scenes. Nonetheless, surviving victims of Daniel also began speaking up, such as Maria Alexander Velez, who reportedly went to police confirming that she had been attacked by Daniel previously. Once apprehended by police and questioned, Daniel would reportedly calmly tell police all about his murderous rampage. Daniel would confess to murdering 71 girls in Ecuador since escaping from Gorgona Island. He would then lead authorities to the crude burial sites of his victims, whose dismembered bodies had not yet been recovered. Authorities would later recall lack of empathy, remorse, or really any emotion from Daniel when explaining his crimes, even when he was at the numerous scenes. When asked why he attacked young girls, it was all back to his desire to be with a virgin because when he assaulted them, he claimed they would cry, which this sparked some kind of satisfaction for Daniel. Part of me kind of wonders if this kind of satisfaction was basically him gaining control, because I mean, realistically, as a child, he didn't really have much control in his life. That and it would give him maybe some kind of power or it would create a power dynamic, I'm assuming, between him and the victim. He would be the one with the upper hand. He would be the one with all the control of the situation. In another weird, disturbing statement from Daniel, he allegedly explained that he killed because he wanted revenge on women's unfaithfulness, according to Murderpedia. Reports claim that Daniel developed a hatred for women in particular, as he believed they would always lie and pretend to be something else. Being labeled a psychopathic, paranoid sadomasochist, Daniel was sentenced to 16 years, which was the maximum sentence available for murder in Ecuador. Of course, many people wanted to poke and pry at Daniel to try and further understand who he was and why he did what he did. I read that apparently he would post up an expensive fee for journalists requesting an interview, as he saw it as a privilege for these journalists to meet with him. Again, the absolute audacity this man has. On November 13th of 1994, Daniel was in his cell when a new inmate by the name of Giovanni Arcisio Nogira Germillo entered and reportedly forced Daniel on his knees. Reports claim that Giovanni told Daniel that it was the hour of vengeance before stabbing Daniel a total of eight times. Giovanni also allegedly cut off one of Daniel's ears as a trophy. Some resources claim that Giovanni was a cousin or a nephew of one of Daniel's victims who obviously sought to remove Daniel from this world like he did to many others. I will also acknowledge that some resources claim that it was actually a man named Louis that murdered Daniel in prison and not Giovanni. Nonetheless, Daniel was 64 years old when he died, with reports claiming that he was buried in a mass grave located in Quito's Elibaton Cemetery. The sadist of El Chaquito, or the mangrove monster, depending on what you wanted to call him, was now away from this world and away from harming anyone else. Now to wrap up this week's Weird Distractions episode. It's been a while since I discussed a pretty intense serial killer-related case on the show, but I think cases like Daniel's are reminders that everyone's trauma can manifest in various ways. Daniel's childhood wasn't easy by any means, shape, or form, but in my mind, that doesn't grant him the right to murder innocent women and girls or to really harm anyone else. But what do you think? Let me know your thoughts on Daniel and this case over on the show's social media accounts or send me an email. As well, let me know if I should cover cases like this again in the future. If you've enjoyed today's Weird Distractions episode, please consider telling your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else who will listen about the show. You can tell them to find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Google Podcasts, Podchaser, and many more. If you're streaming the show on Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. This helps the show out for free by letting others know that it's worth listening to. Another way to support the show for free and to never miss an update is to follow along on the show's various social media accounts. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. My handle is at weirddistracti1 and TikTok. If you want to financially support the show and get yourself a little something extra each month, why not join one of the two tiers over on Patreon? Each month you get exclusive content such as bonus episodes and series the weird destinations travel posts plus early access to the regular feed episodes you can find out which tier is best suited for you by going to patreon.com slash weird distractions podcast shout out to my current patrons aka my weird little family members tom bailey angela john alicia lynn susan shadow courtney jennifer and cheryl i love you all and appreciate your ongoing support of weird distractions if you're unable to support the the show on a monthly basis but still want to support it maybe as a one-time donation check out the show's merch over on redbubble or sign up for a one-time donation over on buy me a coffee lastly i want to hear from you as some longtime listeners may recall christy and i released two listener story-based episodes called listener distractions i'd love to keep doing this series and hear all of your weird tales of ghostly encounters unexplainable events and too close to home true crime stories you can email me your tales at weird distractions Podcast at outlook.com. As well, send me feedback. If there are any corrections that need to be made after today's episode, let me know. And as always, if you need a distraction, I got you. Bye.